Hello, you're listening to the Polari Podcast with me, Sophia Blackwell. And me, Paul Burston. And tonight we're going to be revisiting the June show at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, where we had special guests Adele Anderson from Fascinating Aida and Keris Evans. Paul, did you enjoy putting together this show? Yes, very much so, because they're both people that I have a strong relationship with. I met Adele... I think in 1989, maybe even me 1988. And we just clicked straight away. And um, I didn't even know who Fascinating Aida were when I met her. I didn't know anything about her, what, you know, who she was or what she did or anything. Just met her at a party and we just, we just really connected. So, yes, and then Keris, I've known for far less time, but still about seven years or so, she turned up at a creative writing workshop that Karen McLeod and I were running in Cardiff as part of that year's Polari tour. And she came to the workshop. She's originally from that part of the world, so we have that in common as well. But she was living in Brighton at the time, but she happened to be visiting family in South Wales, and so she came to the workshop. Um, and she she was really fantastic. So at the workshops, you always invite one person to take part in the evening event. And of the people that attended that particular workshop, she was the standout person. So, And we've been working together ever since. She's appeared at Polari in various places and doing various things, whether extracts from her one-woman show or poetry, which is what she did at the RBT. And with Adele Anderson, Adele actually produced and read something on the night for the first time that was partly about her journey as a trans woman and to have surgery. And I found it a really compelling piece of writing. She mentioned in the intro that you, among other people, had been uh, asking her to write a memoir for a while. What do you think is potentially might, might happen from, from this piece of writing? Or do you think that's all we're getting? Because I was fascinated. You know, the reason why I was telling Adele she should write a memoir is that when she first read at Polari, she read at Polari before she performed at Polari in Heaven as a singer, because she did that as well where she read a piece. It wasn't as intimate and revealing a piece as the piece she did at RVT, but it was a piece about her journey and it was about how she had trained to be, a, you know, to uh, host humanist weddings, to be the, ce- the celebrant or whatever the name they, they have, people, people that conduct the ceremonies for humanist weddings. And she read this piece out and she'd she'd send it to me in advance of me to check on it and I came back to her saying because she'd asked me if I would ghostwrite her memoir for her she'd already approached me about this and I said I would be happy to I was finishing the novel that became the closer I get at the time so I couldn't take it on at the time um, and then she sent me this piece and then she read it at South Bank and I said why are you doing what you don't need a ghostwriter just write it so she started writing it I think and then when she turned up at heaven, the night she turned up at heaven to sing at Pilari in heaven, she said, kind of a quiet word, darling. And she took me aside and she said, um, I've decided not to write the memoir, but when I go, all my diaries will be, will be left for you. <laughs> no responsibility there then. <laughs> That's a hell of a legacy. <laughs> Just imagining what that's going to be like. <laughs> I can never tell with Adele whether she's joking or not because she is such a funny person and I'm not sure how serious that was or how much that was just a kind of little gag. But, you know, it's, it's I mean, it's no secret that she that she's she's had several um, lengthy uh, periods in hospital the last couple of years. She's been she's been ill with she had cancer and 
and then she has some complications. And so when someone jo- when someone says that to you, part of your brain's thinking, is she, ta- is, she, is, she, is she planning not to be around for very long or something? And of course, she's such a survivor. I mean, she's just had her birthday and went on top of an aeroplane. You know, when you, you know when you're strapped on top, just standing on the top of the plane. No, I didn't know you could do that. There was either in or jump out. So I didn't know you had a choice as to whether you could be inside it or not. No, you're actually on top of the plane or on the wing. I mean, why anybody would want to do this is beyond my comprehension. I absolutely hate heights. I can, I'll happily do other things that people may think are daring. Like I've dived with great white sharks. I've done various things that are potentially dangerous, but I have a real thing about heights. So um, the fact that she did this, I thought was pretty admirable. of Polari here at the RBT. My name is Bob Burston, I'm an author and journalist and I've been running Polari since 2007. For those who don't know, Polari is a live showcase for LGBTQ plus literary talent. We also run two book prizes for established and emerging writers. Um, we also tour regularly and it was actually while we were on tour that we met our first performer tonight. Um, we were in Cardiff um, very close to where I grew up and a lady called Keris Evans attended a creative writing workshop that was run by myself and Karen McLaren who was sitting just there in the yellow <laughs> give it up for Karen everyone she's a fabulous writing coach uh, Keris has performed spoken word at the Barbican the Thrive HIV Foundation and at Polari on tour in Cardiff Brighton and at the Southbank Centre her other credits include writing for Psychologies magazine, and for several years she acted as a judge for the Polari First Book Prize. She last appeared at Polari in Heaven Nightclub in February before the world changed, where she performed an extract from her solo show, A Trans Fairy Tale. Please give it up for Keris Evans! So this first poem um, I originally performed for International Women's Day. So let me ask you a question. Am I woman enough for you? I ask because in trying to untangle the many layers of my selfhood, I often forget the question. I guess you could say that I'm a bit of a late bloomer. At 17, when most girls were trying to figure out how they fill the world, I was just trying to figure out how I fill high heels, which to me was my world. My life started with a practice, a do-over. There's a whole period of time that falls between the cracks, but the word trans means to go across. 
and it does not matter the shape of my curves, but the amount of stomach it took for me to get here. The way that some might define a gender might be like a light switch on, soft, off, harsh, but my life has always been in the dimmer range. The word woman doesn't quantify the feeling I get when I see a sunset or the way the soil feels between my toes. It turns out that the earth and the stars do not care about chromosomes. You see, there's never been a word that began with trans that didn't have impact. Trans action, transcribing, transformation, transcending, trans woman. But maybe I don't need to say it. Maybe it's said in the way that I keep my body upright in heels or in converse, or the way that my body is alight with electricity that is 100% mine. So, in answer to the question, am I woman enough for you? There isn't an answer. And I may never be woman enough for you, because I'm so much more than a label. And that is enough for me. Thank you. I normally do that poem first because there's always sort of some anxiety around it. Because when I start the poem with my woman enough for you, I'm always scared someone's going to shout, No! <laughs> <laughs> um, so, one of the things that I've really missed from um, sort of the way the world is at the moment is being able to touch people. Um, so, this next poem um, is kind of dedicated to anyone who sort of feels like they've been missing out on touch recently. If you should be the first to flirt, don't. Now, let me explain. I'm not saying don't be first, but why choose fire to quench your thirst? Stories, jokes, puns, they are still tons of messed up allegories. And every effort to impress them is only to impress you. Though if you should find yourself glancing, take all of them in. Let your pupils circumnavigate them from elbow to spine. Each shape they make is like a buttery wine every time. That needs to be devoured. Devoured and savoured, not guzzled. When they see you looking, be found. Hold your ground. It is only through staring can they see the whites of your eyes. And if you should find yourself laughing, Holler like a monkey. Let them know how much life your lungs can hold. So forget all that you've been told. In a world that is sinking, they want to know that you're not afraid to jump in cannonball. After all, they want to hear your voice above all others. Your laugh is like a fire. It catches quickly and ignites the room with desire. There's a reason why they call it tinder. And if you should find yourself reaching for touch, touch first. Don't sit around and wonder whether you are naive to believe in kindness. Remove your own self-blindness. But don't touch to grab, touch to play. A rose is beautiful, but the moment we try to pick it, it starts to die. So try to see each cell beyond its label. Allow each neuron, each tissue and nerve ending you caress to come up with its own identity. Their body is casting off the shackles they had previously known, just like you. 
And if you should find yourself kissing, taste every fibre. Each breath has its own meaning, a connection that goes beyond thoughts and feeling. Allow your lips to move in the shape of the words you dare not speak. If you press softly enough, you might just find what makes them weak. So if you should find yourself flirting, pause. When did we get so misguided? Why are you looking for answers when there's never been a question? Your body has so much language in it already. Don't talk when you've just discovered air for the first time. Find yourself first. The words will follow. Thank you. Dear Perfectionism, thank you for your constant interruption. Without you, how could I ever know I was doing a bad job? Or lazy? Or worthless? Dear Perfectionism, you are the looming shadow I could almost call friend. I can always count on you to drain the joy like blood from an artery. And just like Dracula, I've somehow fallen into the spell that you are somehow good for me. Dear Perfectionism, I've never known a family heirloom quite like you, passed from wrinkled hand to a baby's grip. I could see you when I was criticised for only getting 95% or my inability to catch a... football? I've heard you uttered from the bitter, twisted lips of those who'd say how much better I'd feel with a makeover. But without you, how can I get others to like me? Dear Perfectionism, when the whole world burns from nuclear radiation and all of humanity is nothing but ash, I can still find you scuttering in the mud amongst all the other cockroaches. And it's funny how all the paths of destruction always lead back to you. Dear Perfectionism, you're the one that probably started the nuclear war in the first place. Mm -hmm. Dear Perfectionism, I know I'm not very good at the whole trans activism thing, but I sleep with too many stuffed animals to be angry all the time. My attention span is too short for a sit-in, and my bladder wouldn't hold out long enough to be chained to a building. But the biggest fight I face each day is with you, and I'll probably never win. But if I could figure you out, then maybe I'll figure everything else out too. Dear Perfectionism, there isn't a day that goes by where anxiety isn't a heavy weight on my lungs. Why, well, I wonder whether today will be the day where demons feast on my mind, and yes, you are one of them. But to hold my spine straight in a world that tries to force it down is not bravery. I'm just a workaholic. Dear perfectionism, there is more to life than being perfect. Sometimes it is only through the worst prophecies coming true that I can realise that maybe I like imperfection. Show me a scar and I will show you a story more beautiful than words can ever tell. And speaking of words, I'll use a double negative in a sentence if I want to. Ain't no one going to tell me any difference. Mm -hmm. Dear perfectionism, the heart is a muscle. And every time I turn my back on seeking you out, it's like I'm running a marathon attached to a ventilator. But still, 
I do it because I want to live and to laugh and to feel beautiful. Dear perfectionism, I am beautiful. I've been beautiful since the day I was born, but it's not the beauty that you would define. It's the love that you get when you look at a flower. It may never cover vogue, but it will pollinate the earth faster than words ever could tell. With words and with letters. Dear perfectionism, thank you for listening. You are proof that there is still good within this world. Because if I'd never found you, I never would have gone looking for me. During Caris's first performance, as you say, we had some of her poetry, which was really lovely for, for me to hear because I hadn't actually heard it before, despite having interviewed Caris a couple of times, once about a trans fairy tale, which is the stage piece, and once about being a judge for the Polari Book Prize. When it came to the poetry, I was particularly moved by... Keris's poem about perfectionism, which she did on the night. And this is something that I like talking about with other LGBTQ plus people, because a lot of us are perfectionists. And I sometimes wonder how much of that has to do with our upbringings and feeling kind of less than about who we are. What's your take on it? I think that's absolutely the case. It's certainly the case in my case. Whenever, whenever, whenever I hear people talk about imposter syndrome, which... I've certainly experienced from time to time and still and still experience when I hear straight people talking about it in particular I always think god you've got no idea I mean growing up realizing that you're queer you feel like an imposter as soon as you're aware of it or as soon as it's pointed out to you I mean in my case I didn't know that I was gay I didn't know what gay was I didn't know what sexuality was but I knew that I was different to the other boys by the time I was 4 or 5 and they knew too and they were calling me those names from the, from the age of four or five. I was being called Sissy and Puff and et cetera, et cetera, from a very young age. So you learn to be an imposter because you learn to basically present yourself in a way that's going to make your life livable. And you try and pass yourself off like everyone else. So you sort of study everyone else and try and imitate the way that they behave and copy the way they behave and try and fit in. At least, at least I did for, for, for a while. And then, of course, I you know, reached 14, discovered David Bowie, thought, sod you all, and went the other way <laughs> and rubbed their faces in it instead. But I do think that that stays with you, that perfectionism, because you are, there's always that underlying sense that you're somehow not good enough because you've let people down, you've let your... My family's expectations of me were let down by my disclosing that I was gay. There's no question about that. The fact that we've moved on and things are great, we have a very good relationship now... And I don't harbour any ill will about it or anything. It was a, just a product of the time and their circumstances and their experience. They didn't know any gay people. But at the time, it was very hurtful because I, I, I thought I was the good son. I was the, I was the boy who went to college, the first in my family to go to college. I was very studious. I worked hard. I was good to my mum. I was a, I was a good, I never caused them any bother or any trouble. And suddenly I was, you know, seen as being this person causing all this grief because I'd come out as gay. And not just come out as gay, but come out as gay publicly because I was getting arrested on demonstrations and my my face was appearing on news broadcasts and in, news, and in newspapers, usually with railings around me and handcuffs on my wrists and police. And so for my mum, it was quite difficult because she'd go into work at the hospital. She was a nurse 
on the night shift and she'd go into work and all the other nurses would say, oh, I saw your pool on the telly last night. So there was no getting away from it for her, you know, which is which is tough on your parents. So I think that perfectionism, that urge to be, it stays with you because you want to kind of make up for something that you feel you, you didn't deliver. So speaking of perfection, we then saw that virtuoso reading by Adele Anderson. And I understand that you'd actually seen the reading beforehand or that you'd spoken about it a couple of times in advance. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Because I know it doesn't always work that way with Polari. So, yeah, so when she came to the RVT and read the piece that she read, she'd actually sent me a draft of it in advance. She often does that. And it was a lot shorter and I said, well, I think it needs to be to be a bit longer than this because there'll just be the two of you and then we'll be discussing it. So the more there is, the more the more we can discuss. And then she said, OK, I'll write some more, but I won't, but I won't let you see it before the night, which is fine. I, I don't normally read people's material before the night anyway. I didn't know until the night exactly what we were going to get. It was much harder hitting than the, the version I'd read earlier, which was a much shorter and sort of more polite, softer piece, I guess because she really didn't pull any punches with that piece. It was great. Yeah, I thought it was terrific. It was really interesting, and it was a very fascinating snapshot of that time and the medical profession's attitude towards people who were undergoing transition. It was really, really informative. Well, at the t- I mean, the person that actually introduced Adele and I was a film producer called Christine Clark, who oh, was still, still working now, but uh, when I met Chris through my friend Vaughan, who I used to live with years ago, who was the first friend who got ill and, and led to me becoming an AIDS activist and so on. He, Chris was a friend of Vaughan's. Chris was making her first television um, documentary, which was called Sex Change Shock Horror Probe. And it was a sort of sort of parody of the way that people, the, the media handled the, what was then called tra- transsexuality. And it was incredibly ahead of its time because it actually explored how gender is a construct and how all different people are on a gender spectrum, whether they're trans or not, whether they're gay or straight, etc., etc. So it was a very, very um, ahead-of-its-time documentary and Adele's one of the people featured in it, which is how we met. But at the time, the, the main sort of uh, image was the one that Adele mentioned on stage of the RVT, which was Julia, the, the documentary about Julia. There was an episode called George Becomes Julia or something like that. And it was very, very prurient. There was a very prurient edge to it. I had a lot of respect for Julia. And it was, in many ways, pretty uh, groundbreaking television because it was the first time that most people in the UK got a glimpse of what it was like to live as a trans woman and the challenges that that involved, especially when they... When you, when you see her first going to try and persuade the doctors that she needs to have hormone therapy and she needs to have surgeries, Julia Grant, this is um, who's no longer with us, sadly, but she was she, she was a trailblazer in many ways, and there was basically her. There was Tula, who was the supermodel, who had appeared in a James Bond movie, did ad for Smirnoff, and then was outed by the News of the World, and then became an activist and took the the government to, to the European Court of Human Rights for her right to marry a man, the man she was in love with, and was refused. But she started that whole ball rolling Tula. Caroline Cossey is her real name. She's fantastic, really amazing woman. So they, they, they were really the kind of... It was Julia, Caroline, and then I met Adele in real life. And then through Adele, I met Caroline Cossey. I met 
um, Faye Presto, the magician. And I met this whole kind of group of trans women back in the late 80s, early 90s, at a time when they they weren't as visible as they are now. Some of the discussions were the same. Some of, some of the hostilities and rows and prejudices were the same. But it was a very different landscape. People who called themselves transsexuals, who we'd now call trans, were very, very distinct from people who cross-dressed or would, would call themselves, in, the, in those days, transvestites. There, was, there were very, very different groups of people who didn't really see themselves as part of the same community. That was a, it was a very different world. It was much more separated um, and fragmented. So most of the trans women I knew were part of the gay community. They were, they, they were friends with gay men on the whole, and in most cases had lived at some point in their lives as gay men, as Adele did, which, which she talked about as well. So there was, a sort of sh- there was a sort of shared experience, commonality thing going on. So I think that was part of what the bond was about. Adele Anderson is a singer with the comedy trio Fascinating Ida and has also appeared in various films and TV programmes. I'd never seen Adele read from her own writing before and so it was really eye-opening to hear about this experience that Adele had while undergoing transition and also about how that point in her life led her to start the beginnings of a creative career. So here is the incomparable Adele Anderson on stage at the RVT. Please welcome the legendary Adele Anderson. Hello, hello, hello everyone. Now, many people, including Mr. Paul Burston, nay, especially Mr. Paul Burston, have been on me for years now to write my memoirs. I'm not sure the world really needs yet another trans autobiography, but were I to do so, here is a sample of what would be in it. It's a piece I've written especially for this evening and it's entitled, The Doctor Will See You Now. One day in 1973, I traveled down from Birmingham where I was living after completing my degree at the university to the Charing Cross Hospital in Fulham Palace Road. I don't recall the exact date and you'd think I would considering it was one of the most important days of my life for I was about to meet the man who would help me to realise my lifelong ambition of becoming a woman. I was there to see not the surgeons who would ultimately effect the transformation, but the psychiatrist who would assess my suitability for surgery, the now infamous Dr John Randall. He was a psychotherapist at the Gender Identity Clinic, and nobody got surgery without his say-so. I knew how important it was to make a good impression and thought I knew exactly what to say. I was ushered in to see the great man. Imagine, if you will, a grey-haired, portly gentleman who peered at you over half-moon spectacles. He looked like Alfred Hitchcock and spoke in a similar lugubrious manner. (laughs) Straight away he asked me, I suppose you want to have an operation to make you a woman. Which, by the way, is impossible. You will only ever be an approximation of a woman. You will merely be a castrated male. I was on my guard. Was this a trick question? I knew in advance that he did not respond well to emotional blackmail. And that if I broke down and cried, Yes, and if you don't give it to me straight away, I'm going to hack off my fingers or kill myself, I would surely be shown the door. (laughs) I recited my prepared speech. 
Well, I know you're not going to give me the operation straight away, I said. So let's talk about what you can do for me today. That is, a letter saying that you are treating me, which means I can use a public toilet without fear of arrest. I can change my driving license, apply for a female passport, adjust my employment card. What I didn't know in advance was that Dr. Randall did not like being told what to do. <laughs> he would in time do all of those things for me, but only when he decided. Meanwhile, I was congratulating myself on having got this far. I've wanted to be female since I was three, but it wasn't until I'd finished my education, left home, tried being a gay male and confirmed it wasn't for me, that I got down to the long and arduous task of transitioning. There was no self-identification in the 1970s. If you wanted to change sex, you had to do it officially. Notice I used the phrase to change sex. Even though we attended the gender identity clinic, we were known as transsexuals, a term I'm still happy to use to describe myself today, although it is now frowned upon. Call me old-fashioned. <laughs> as I said, in order to change your documentation, you needed that letter from Dr. Randall to do it. And to see Dr. Randall, you needed a letter of referral from your GP. By the time I saw Dr. Randall, I was already taking oestrogen, which I had obtained by subterfuge. <laughs> I knew a few trans girls in Birmingham. Indeed, I dated one of them, thinking that might be enough before concluding that I didn't want to be with her. I wanted to be her. <laughs> she wasn't very pleased. <laughs> they pointed me towards a sympathetic doctor who didn't ask questions. So I got dressed up, put on a wig, went to see him and asked for a repeat prescription. And he gave it to me. After a few months, when I felt ready, I asked him to write to Charing Cross Hospital, and he did. From then on, every three months, I travelled down to London to see Dr. Randall. The Birmingham girls had told me that I could expect to see him for a year or 18 months, after which he would refer me for surgery when I would have to wait another year, because that's how long the surgery waiting list was. I mentally prepared myself for the wait. Alas, that timeline would prove to be way off. I soon learned that the good doctor had rules which one had to obey. He believed in stealth, i.e. that to effect a truly successful transition, one should be able to pass so convincingly in your new role that nobody would ever suspect that you'd not been born into it. Looking back, it was a lot easier to pass back then because there were so few of us around that we attracted very little attention. Nowadays, Mum's Net would have the public believe that trans women lurk around every corner waiting to leap out from behind the bushes and frighten the horses. <laughs> the general public now know the telltale signs to look for, which has sometimes backfired spectacularly when cisgendered women of a masculine appearance have been challenged in their own spaces. <laughs> However, bypassing, Dr. Randall meant that a trans woman should only wear skirts and have a traditionally female job, such as a nurse or a secretary. <laughs> if you worked as a lorry driver or an engineer, you were advised to change profession. I was an executive officer in the civil service with staff under me whom I had to manage. My managerial tone, when I speak to Dr. Randall, offended him. I was being confrontational and therefore too masculine. Similarly, the fact that I wore jeans to our consultations was a black mark against me. Luckily, I was not married, or I would have had to get divorced before he would even consider treating me. And at least I didn't do a Julia Grant, who made a famous BBC documentary about her transition, and have breast implants without his permission, or I would have been cast into outer darkness. 
One year turned into two. I moved to London, and two years turned into three. And each time I returned home from my quarterly consultation, I would be plunged into a deep depression after having yet again not been offered surgery. Finally, I could stand it no longer and plucked up the courage to ask him straight out, why won't you put me forward for surgery? His answer astounded me. Well, you don't really want it, do you? When I inquired what on earth had given him that idea, he referred me to our very first meeting. I asked you if you wanted to have an operation, and you said no. And he exploded with rage, but I held myself in check. No, I didn't say I didn't want it. I said I knew you wouldn't give it to me straight away. That's not the same thing at all. Having sorted that out, I assumed he would apologize and put me forward there and then, but no. I had to wait until my next appointment three months later before he finally gave me the green light. I was slightly worried that I hadn't had a confirmation letter from the hospital. So on the morning of my admission, I rang them, only to be told that because of an emergency with a cancer patient, my surgery was postponed for a month. We sent you a telegram yesterday to let you know, they told me. Turned out they sent it to my old address in Birmingham, where I had lived for years. As you can imagine, I was distraught. This one month leave I had booked coincided with my leaving one civil service department and moving to another. And I couldn't go back to the first one because my job had already been filled. And I couldn't start the new one and then take a month off after a month. Also, thinking I'd be in hospital, I'd spend all my salary. Luckily, HR were extremely understanding. They arranged another month off and a grant tied me over. In the event, it all worked out rather well for me. I used the first month to take part in a play reading at the Roundhouse. I wasn't in the business at the time, but I knew people who were. Somebody dropped out, I stepped in, and had a marvellous time. The month passed, and on the 5th of July, 1978, I entered hospital. And after a few days of blood tests and enemas, on the 10th, I had the surgery which heralded the beginning of my new life. This date is seared into my memory, and I celebrate it every year. Like the Queen, I have two birthdays. <laughs> it all went according to plan, with no complications, which can, alas, happen all too often. There were two other trans women in the ward with me who were in there for corrective surgery. Dr. Randall came to visit me. His verdict? It's too early if it's been a, to see if it's been a success. I'd like to know your reaction in two months' time. <laughs> I, told him it, I told him it was a success, and I thought my vagina was beautiful. He pulled a face and said, Beauty is hardly a word I would use. I would associate with that part of the world. <laughs> Later, once he realised it had been a success according to his standards, he put me forward for all sorts of other surgeries I might want, including breast implants and jaw contouring. I took him up on some of them because I figured that, well, by then he owed me. <laughs> His strangest suggestion was a leg shortening operation, as he, <laughs> as he considered me to be tall for a girl. <laughs> I note that he never suggested such an operation to another of his patients, Caroline Cossey, also known as Tool of the Model, who is six feet tall, or 1.83 metres for all you young things out there. I'm nearly three inches shorter than her, and most of my height is in my body and head. So I would look very strange indeed with his legs waddling away. <laughs> <laughs>
accidentally, from being the first time, until done. We're going to start with the body. Let's just jump straight on in there. Um, Harris, you read that poem which you read for us at Cardiff, um, which is very much about the body. Um, Karen McLeod, who taught that class, um, is currently running a series of workshops for Polari online. And this week, one of the exercises that she gave the people taking part in the workshop was to write about the body. And several people find it very difficult to write about. So I wanted to ask you, did you find it a daunting thing to write about, coming from your background and your life story? Well, I did find it daunting, but it was, I guess, for different reasons that your students found it about. For me, it was just like there was too much material to work with. Um, and... For me, like obviously body image and any kind of sort of like self-esteem thing is always just such a hot topic for me because of my transition. So it was just, it was really tricky just finding sort of like the right sort of words to, to go along with it. And basically how it came about was um, a friend of mine, I say friend, um, he, he said to me like, oh, I've just been to Paris, I've just been to the Louvre and... I saw the statue there of Maphrodite, and as soon as I saw I thought of you, Karis. And, and I'm like, great, that's just how people see me, I guess. Um, so for me, it's like, the looking at the body, it's like I'm always looking at it through someone else's eyes, like how they see me. And I think one sort of theme that sort of like come, is coming through poetry is, is like how I'm just constantly trying to find my own perspective on things. So I think for trans people, we, we so often like try and fit ourselves into society and try and make sure that others see us the way that we see ourselves. Um, so and I think part of what is going to contribute, I think, to, to trans mental health overall is for actually us to sort of start seeing ourselves truly and authentically first before we start um, trying to change ourselves from other people. By the time I actually became entered the public eye, I'd more or less got everything done. That I, need, that I felt I needed to do. And since then, it's just been, it's been a lot of maintenance, really. <laughs> <laughs> and all of that, since then. And then, of, now, of course, I, I'm dealing with an aging body, which uh, I have found slightly difficult. And, of course, um, five years ago, nearly six now, I had um, cancer. And I had, uh, my whole bladder was removed, and I had a new bladder installed which really gives you a different perspective about uh, what's, what's important, really, about the body. And I figured, I mean, I do remember saying at the time, uh, it's nothing to do with being trans, and I just remember saying at the time, I will not have a stoma, you will not give me a stoma. I cannot live with a stoma. And I remember when I woke up, I looked down and there was a stoma bag there. And I, I, I hit the roof, I shrieked, I shrieked, I, I screamed the ward down, and uh, I was heavily medicated at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and they got my partner on the phone and he was saying, we'll deal with this, we'll deal with this. Anyway, it turned out it wasn't a stone, it was just a bag that was, there were two stents coming out of my kidneys. You know, the surgeon gave it, and then I was fine then, after that. <laughs> just got on with it. But it was important to me that I kept, you know, so I've got a, I've got a few puncture wounds and things in my stomach now, but basically I'm still look pretty much the same as I did. And, but I mean, I do remember that I, I basically felt that I looked the same for about 40 years. And I remember seeing it in my mother. She always looked just the same to me until she was about 60, and then suddenly she looked older. And then when she got to 80, she suddenly looked much older. 
Um, so I'm in the older stage at the moment. very old stage, yeah. You mentioned um, Caroline Cossie. People that may not know, um, Tula was a really, really huge model at the time. And, um, there was a very, very tall. Yeah, very tall, yeah. <laughs> very tall, but also very, very famous. And um, was an, in, in a Bond movie and did an advert for, or series of adverts for Smirnoff, one of which she was water skiing behind the Loch Ness Monster. And the tagline was, they say anything could happen. So there was a hint at her transition going on in recent advertising. Um, but she also was a, a, a sort of civil rights campaign because she took her case to the European Court of Human Rights. She certainly did, yeah. And it, but uh, sadly, she had to leave England because she couldn't get any work anymore. But the same thing had happened to April. Uh, April was a Vogue model and did lots of modelling. And then as soon as she was outed, she, she couldn't get arrested. Uh, and um, then uh, history repeated itself with Caroline. Of course, it's not the case now. They're que queuing up to get trans models on, into magazines. But, but yeah, so Caroline, was, it was uh, very difficult. And she's such a gentle girl. She got quite a Norfolk brewer about it. She's been quite, quite, quite uh, softened. But anyway, she, yes, she was going to marry some, I think, a Middle Eastern guy, and his family found out and put the kibosh in there. But she has been married for the last uh, 20, uh, 20, 30 years to a really gorgeous Canadian guy. But she's become, she's come out again from, rather like I have, come out of retirement activist, activism-wise, because it, it's needed now, sadly. I thought I'd put all that, those years behind me. Um, many, you know, when I, was, when I was doing it the first time around, I didn't think I'd have to do it all over again now. But that's the way it is. As part of the show, Paul and the guests spoke about the differences in atmosphere and culture on the gay and trans scenes between today and the 1980s and 90s. They also spoke about the practice of the tabloid press of outing people during that time, either people who they suspected to be gay, to be trans, or to potentially have HIV-AIDS. Adele speaks here about her run-in with a tabloid newspaper and why she now doesn't drink before performing or going out with members of the press. Shortly after, I, in fact, the first ever festival we went to, uh, there was there was sniffing around, and uh, so we took the decision to uh, break the story first. So we approached Henry Noble, and a very small piece appeared on the back page of the Observer, and then everybody went away for a while. And if anybody ever asked about it, we just basically said, "No, it's not relevant. We're a three-woman group." If they said, "Which one of you is?" A, is the trans woman, Diddy would say, it's me, I played rugby at Trinity, you know. <laughs> Always good to have trans allies, I have to say. She's been, been the best. Uh, but then a few years later, uh, a guy purporting to be from the Sunday Mirror approached us and said, you always get interviewed together, all the three of you, and I really would like to interview each of you separately and see what you think. But yes, oh, ding, ding, morning, <laughs> So he interviewed uh, Dilly and Denise for about five minutes each, and then he took me out to dinner. And I was explaining to you why I never drink when I'm, when I'm working, because this, this was my downfall. He took me out to dinner and um, plied me with champagne, which I couldn't afford to buy for myself in those days. And uh, loose lips sink ships. And I, <laughs> I sunk my own ship, and it, and it turned out, of course, it wasn't for the Sunday Mirror, it was for the News of the World. And I ended up double page spread, and it said, Sex is so much better, now I'm not a man, says cabaret star Adele. 
I may have said something like that. <laughs> I definitely would never have used the word man, but I never do. Um, and unfortunately, we were just about returning to Australia for the second tour, and it followed me over there. It was one and it was reported and all the papers there. And um, I have to say that the other girls were not best pleased with me. Now I look back on it now, and it seems... I mean, basically what I said was, the first time we'd gone to Australia, I'd basically... I found Australian men very appealing and basically shagged my way around Australia, <laughs> which is quite a mild thing to say now. But uh, but back then it, it seemed you know it seemed really quite shocking, and I got into trouble for it. So I try now. I never drink, and I always think twice now and speak once. <laughs> was it hard on a personal level? Was it hard? Was it sort of being exposed like that, not for your consent? It must be quite hard for those very invasive. Oh yeah, I mean the first. I mean, that first year at the Edinburgh Festival was the first year that we, we uh, debuted the song Doesn't Matter If You Sing Out of Tunes and Long As Your Journey, which if you've seen our show, never, basically is a spoof of, of Kurt Vile and Bob Fosse rolled into one. And we, we do amazing things on chairs and I sing in a very low voice like that. And one of the critics had written, she could easily convince me that she was a slinky transvestite in a Berlin bar. Well, actually, that's quite a compliment. <laughs> but of course, I thought, oh God, he's, out, he's outing me, he's outing me. And then I, I went into a complete funk about it. Now I don't really give a toss, you know. If, well, because the ridiculous thing is that, uh, that everybody, everybody knows and, uh, or the, but now, then of course they forgot because we didn't talk about it for so long when I started singing the song Prisoner of Gender in First Age Guide Dillia persuaded me it was time to address the issue after you know, about 30 years uh, mm -hmm. people were saying why, why is she singing that song and they said because she's a trans woman no <laughs> they've just forgotten or they never knew you know. although it's, you know, it's all there on Google There aren't a great amount of decent parts for women or for black and minority ethnic people. And Keris, for example, spoke about trying to get work in the theatre and in film roles and was just often being offered trans prostitute roles or a man in a dress, um, as, as, as she says. Um, so it was really interesting hearing about that. And I think that's one of the reasons why we get into, A, writing our own stuff and B, producing it so we don't have to fit into somebody else's idea of like, what a woman or what a trans person looks like or how they behave. There's a very funny thing that Adele wrote for her intro because she always sends me her bio for her introduction and she always writes it in the third person. Um, so it's already written for me. <laughs> and um, Yeah, it's very good. And, she's, and, and she wrote in it, you know, that, you know, as well as being a singer, she's appeared as an actor, works as an actor and has appeared oh, yes. in many television productions, often playing a trans woman, a role for which she is eminently qualified, which I thought was a great way of putting it, because she does, she, she has often been given those parts. But then the other question then is, well, you know, far better that it goes to a trans person than somebody else because that whole discussion which is very relatively recent you know from the documentary disclosure which is all about trans people on screen and who should play these characters or not and what 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 impact that has on the culture Chris, what, what is your take on the um trans actors trans roles thing well for me it's like i think in principle if the world was ideal 
everyone, we should be able to play everyone's roles. But in an ideal world, Piers Morgan wouldn't exist, so there's that. Um, um, the, the problem is, is that, so I, I've had this experience as well. So I went to, um, to drama school when I was about 17, and that's when I um, realised that I was trans. Um, and I came out and thinking that everyone was going to be behind me, everyone would love me because it's the art. Everyone hated it. <laughs> um, but um, the thing that really got to me was they kept saying to me, we're only going to cast you in male roles because you are a man. And for me, it was at that point where I just thought, well, I'm off, um, and then uh, went and tried to do my own thing. Um, Funny enough, I went to uni, just tried to, th thought, well, I'm never going to make it in the arts, so I thought I'll try and do nursing, which my parents always tried to get me into. Um, and then I got into my third year and realised that I was terrible at it. Um, and um, so I tried to go back into the acting thing. And I'll never forget the first um, actors meeting I went to, someone just said to me, oh, you've got a very interesting face. And I was like, oh, hello to you too. Um, <laughs> And um, after sort of this meeting, I, I got offered, in, in one week, I got offered three um, auditions, all of them for trans prostitutes, trans sex workers, um, which, you know, in itself is fine, um, but the, uh, the, this kind of like general tone of it was um, that it was kind of like it, they didn't really care. In fact, one of them, it said, it could be trans, but to be honest, it could just be a man in a dress. Um, and you know, I actually emailed them and I said, you know, well, I, I'm not going to be taking this any further and I don't think any self-respecting trans person would. Um, and they just didn't care. But um, for me, it's always been that I think because of that experience, because of thinking that's how people see us, and, and it, for me, I just feel like trans people should be playing trans roles because I don't, unless they can start offering trans role, trans people, you know, cis roles, um, I don't think things things will change. So I think we have to get into this point where we at least start seeing more and more trans people, and we are now. Um, but I think we have to do it in a way that until it becomes normalising. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that episode of the Polari podcast recorded live at the RVT with Keris Evans and Adele Anderson. We'll be back fairly soon. After a bit of a spate of putting up shows from earlier in the year, we will be returning in early October or late September, depending on how productive we are, with a look at the preview for this year's Polari Prize, where we'll be visiting and revisiting interviews, discussions and extracts with some of the writers who were shortlisted, including Mosin Zaidi, Golnush Noor and potentially some of the live readings from the September RVT show, which Paul will be hosting as always. If you like the show, do give us a nice positive rating on whichever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. If you know folks who don't really feel that comfortable with podcast formats, we're now trying to diversify where we post. So you can actually listen to our episodes on YouTube now. All of the back episodes are up, all seven of them so far, which is really exciting. And I'm also looking to embed them into Twitter just for additional ease of use. But in the meantime, you can find the podcast on Google Podcasts, on Spotify and on SoundCloud. So hopefully that should be enough for the time being. We'll be back with you very soon and thank you very much for listening.